A three-member panel of federal judges upheld an injunction that stopped the mandate that federal contractors have COVID vaccinations. It was not a unanimous decision. Yet the same panel to which the Biden administration had appealed the injunction agreed that the injunction should not be nationwide. Confusing? You bet. Here to help untangle this latest development in this long-running situation, Jenner and Block partner Matthew Hawes. Matt, good to have you back. Good to be back, Tom. This is the 11th Circuit Court, a three-judge panel. What are they actually saying here? Yes, okay for the injunction, but only where we have jurisdiction? Yeah, exactly. They said two main things. And again, it's kind of important to have the context here. This is, as you said, a long-running saga. Uh, You've got the Biden administration executive order requiring several things, but most notably that contractor employees and others in the work site be vaccinated against COVID-19. As with everything in America, this went into the courts right away, and we saw a series of decisions with injunctions. The interesting thing about this decision is that it was the only nationwide injunction. So you had some other district courts, federal district courts, that issued more limited injunctions, perhaps for a handful of states where the state government was a plaintiff before the court um, or for other uh, limited parties before it. The Southern District of Georgia, which is the original decision here, issued a nationwide injunction saying that the contractor COVID vaccine mandate could not be enforced against contractors anywhere in the country. That, of course, made it a lot easier for government contractors to figure out what to do. They no longer had to look at whether they were performing in a certain state or located in a certain state that was subject to an injunction. They could just move on uh, down their priority list of other pressing issues, inflation, labor. But of course, they knew that this was going to go up on appeal, and that's what happened. This appeal has been one of the faster-tracked ones. We had oral arguments back in April, and then we got a decision the Friday before last. So what did this decision do? In the midst of the status quo, which was a nationwide injunction, did two interesting things. One, it upheld that preliminary injunction. It found that the plaintiffs were likely to prevail on the merits, and we can talk about some of the logic of what they why they held that. But then two, it narrowed the scope of the injunction. And so it pulled back that nationwide injunction that at least gave everyone a lot of certainty. And it said that it was only appropriate to give injunctive relief to the parties before the court. So just the handful of states that were before it, and this is important, only those state governments and their agencies themselves. So not contractors operating within those states, but only the entities before the court itself. Then interestingly here, there was an industry group, the Associated Builders and Contractors, that had also been added as a plaintiff. And so it said its members also were subject to this injunction. They could not have the vaccine mandate enforced against them. So a significant narrowing of the scope. And this has got to be confusing for contracting officers on behalf of the federal agencies, no less than it is for contractors. Absolutely. Contracting officers, just like businesses, really want certainty. Everybody wants to do the right thing. They want to do their jobs well. Uh, But yes, this creates a lot of uncertainty, lack of, of clarity about what they're supposed to be doing on which contracts and when. We're speaking with Matt Hawes, attorney and a partner at Jenner and Block. So what then should companies do that are 
trying to get their staffs back on site at federal agencies to do the work of the government. Yeah, so all eyes shifted to the federal government. Uh, The ball is in their court when faced with this uh, decision. So, of course, technically, they get to decide if they want to appeal it up to the Supreme Court. We're waiting to see that. Now, you got to remember, this is a Supreme Court that has already ruled on similar issues with the OSHA requirements last year and found that those were outside of the the president's authority. So there's some complicated strategic decisions to be made by the Department of Justice and the administration about an appeal. And so pending that, all eyes shifted to the Safer Federal Workforce Task Force. Again, the way this rule has worked is that the executive order told the government to go out and create a clause, and that clause pointed everyone to a website, which is the Safer Federal Workforce Task Force website. Now, that website, after this lower court decision was issued, had a notice on it that the uh, requirements of the executive order would not be enforced Uh, until there was further written notice due to a preliminary nationwide injunction. So the whole question was, okay, now that that preliminary nationwide injunction has gone away, it's no longer nationwide, what's the government going to do? Will they give us some clarity about their enforcing it on a regional level. I mentioned there were a whole bunch of different lawsuits out there. And so we now have this patchwork quilt of different states that are subject to an injunction or not. Will the federal government create some clarity? Last week, we did get an update to the Safer Federal Workforce Task Force website. It's a little unclear what it did. I think most people are reading that as a response to this narrowing of the injunction. Uh, They did some reformatting of the website, and they moved up their statement about not enforcing it into a box at the very top of the website. And it now says that to ensure compliance with an applicable preliminary nationwide injunction, which may be supplemented, modified, or vacated, the federal government will take no action to implement or enforce the executive order. It would seem like the worst outcome would be for a patchwork. It might work okay on behalf of contractors working for states, as you mentioned, but if you have a nationwide, some sort of a services contract to maintain this or that or support whatever, many contracts at the federal level operate in multiple locations. Absolutely. So there's a whole nerdy legal path you can go down. You can read the the 11th Circuit's discussion of whether nationwide injunctions are appropriate. They say, of course, that it's better for different circuits to be able to come to their own conclusions and the country benefits from that. But as a practical matter, businesses want certainty and clarity. And when you are a modern government contractor, you operate in maybe all 50 states, you have contracts with uh, performance even in multiple states. This patchwork quilt is very complicated, very challenging. We created a chart for our clients. It's available on our website with each of the injunctions and where it applies. But that's a really painful process to be going through each day on each contract. Right. And it's not at all certain that contracting officers or even contracting officers' representatives are thinking as part of their daily work to check the Federal Safer Workforce Task Force site. Absolutely. All of this is another burden on contracting officers as well. You know, again, I think most folks are reading the current guidance on that website is saying that the government won't take any action until they come up with more direction. So I think that 
we're seeing contracting officers kind of in the same place as contractors, feeling like the status quo is that no action will be taken until they receive new orders uh, and trying to do the best with the rest of their complicated jobs. And nothing coming from the Office of Federal Procurement Policy or from the Office of Federal Contractor Compliance Programs? Right. What we've got thus far is what's on the website, and it's not perfectly clear. <laughs> All right. So what are what is Jenner and Block telling its clients to do that are contractors? Just go ahead and go to work if that's what the agency wants you to do? Yeah, so you absolutely need to be paying attention to what you're receiving from your government partners. Um, We're telling clients to make sure that they're alerting all of their contracting personnel, reminding them of this issue, to be um, on the lookout for any contract modifications or other communications with this clause in it. We're talking about these requirements. If you already have contracts that have this clause in it, make sure you're paying attention to see if you receive any communication from your contracting officers about whether they are are believing that this needs to be enforced or how it needs to be enforced. I think in this sort of grayness where everyone is struggling to figure out the direction, uh, really paying attention to what's going on, your communications, and then working closely with with your counterparties um, where appropriate is important. You might say we have a continuing irresolution. As is often the case in government contracting these days. That's right, Tom. Attorney Matthew Hawes is a partner at Jenner & Block. Thanks so much for joining me. A pleasure as always. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com along with a link to his blog post on this topic. Subscribe to The Federal Drive at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After an exemplary career as a former executive at the FBI, focused on policy and strategy, Sasha O'Connell, Ph.D., is guiding future federal leaders as the executive in residence in the School of Public Affairs at American University. Sasha joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss her exciting career, the future of the federal workforce, and the lessons she's learned along the way. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Sasha O'Connell. Sasha is an executive in residence in the Department of Justice, Law, and Criminology at the School of Public Affairs at American University and spent the majority of her career at the FBI and most recently as the organization's chief policy advisor, science and technology and the Section Chief of Office and Policy for the FBI's Deputy Director. Sasha, welcome. Jane, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Can you give us an example of someone early in your career that motivated you, and then and, and how did what did that look like? Sure, absolutely. So it sounds almost cliche, but it was the dining room table. So I grew up um, with a stepfather who spent 30 years at the Veterans Administration at the VA, and he talked at the dinner table. He started as a social worker and then sort of rose up into management, administration, and leadership. And his stories, right, and his approach really, really impacted me. My mom, interestingly, ended up in a career in public service. She was a prosecutor. She's currently a retired state superior court judge. Um, But she had a big career change also in her 40s. She went back to law school in her 40s. So getting all of that in the mix at a young age at the dinner table really, really impacted me um, in really specific ways. Yeah, that's amazing. My my father was part of um, the generation that took um, President Kennedy's call to action. And he took that to heart, and he went and worked at the Department of Interior and a number of other places in federal service. 
So it's, it's catching when, when you're around it. You've held a number of leadership roles at the FBI, which is historically a male-dominated organization. What skills or traits helped you most as you navigated that? Yeah, it's such a, it's an interesting and challenging yeah. sort of situation and question. One I don't think I still am reflecting on. I've been out of the FBI about six years, and I'm sort of still thinking about it. I think the bottom line was when I was there, and I really grew up there, um, I didn't. I didn't know any different. I grew up with male cousins and brothers, and you know, it was sort of a continuation of, of my existence. So it did, you know. In retrospect, it, it was a really unique situation, but it didn't necessarily feel that way for me at the time. I think staying mission focused, staying not about me, staying flexible in terms of problem solving, all helped me. I will say there's resources today that weren't there when I was there, or certainly when I was starting out. There's a lot of affinity groups for women in national security, women in federal law enforcement. And I will say I think I would have really benefited from access to those kind of resources as I was coming up. Um, I had both incredible mentors, men and women, um, women across the organization who I became very close with who were incredible supports, not just getting the job and starting out, but sort of matriculating through. But again, I'm really sort of proud of involved in some of the work of those external organizations that bring women across government, um, executive women in government, and those kind of organizations together, because I think it is really, really helpful um, as one moves through. Yeah, we, we actually work with a, a number of those, too, and, and go to their events and conferences and support them because it's important. How has your leadership style developed or changed over the years? Well, I think I've gotten a little more confident in it, right? The seeds were there at that dining room table. One thing um, that carried through that I learned from my stepdad was to focus on the process. He would talk at dinner about big ideas or big changes and how to get from here to there was part of his day job. He thought about explicitly was getting other people on board, getting that stakeholder engagement, getting other people to think it was their idea if that was required. And that's something I started out with as a gift, right, that kind of approach. And then I got confidence in that, and then I added things. I will say, as I moved on, my appreciation for taking care of is maybe the wrong word, but really focusing on the people who work with you and for you in some instances, um, you know, making sure that they have what they need to be successful in a tactical way. But then also something I definitely learned at the FBI as I went along is, you know, the importance of creating an environment that is supportive and inspiring. You know, we joke about it, but food has played a pretty serious role um, in my leadership style over time. Um, I learned from great mentors. I worked with Bill Estevez at the FBI who had a full-scale cappuccino maker at his cubicle, right, and would host coffee hour. And you'd see the steam rising across the cubicles. Um, I worked with a, a great friend who used to carry hot frittatas for breakfast celebrations or on, the, on the metro, right, in one of those sort of coolie bags. Um, and so I've sort of, I think it's been additive in terms of learning, getting confidence in my approach, and then adding these pieces as I go that I've certainly learned from mentors and colleagues. And clearly you never let anything get in your way. You were mission-focused, as you mentioned, and you just got the job done no matter what was in front of you. Well, I wish, I wish, Jane, it was, it was that easy. I mean, I think we had a lot of success. Um, one thing has always been my approach when starting out as a leader, too, is to solve near-term problems. I always say sort of deliver short and then you can push them long, right? So we've, we don't always succeed in those long-term goals or those, you know, sort of blue-sky ideas as leaders we want to achieve. 
Um, but we deliver on those short-term pieces, right? And you get that buy-in from those stakeholders. And then often you can push toward those bigger dreams, hopes, aspirations, and goals. Um, I would like to say I was 100% on both fronts. <laughs> I'm not sure your characterization is 100% accurate there, but I'll take it um, in, this, in this sense. Looking back, what, what's one piece of advice you might have given your younger self when you first started? Yeah, it's, it's interesting today, too, working with students, I get that chance, right, to give my, essentially, my younger self um, advice every day. And one thing we talk a lot about, and I wish I had thought more explicitly about, is really, it's about calibration, right? And so I always think Emeril Lagasse would say, like, a stove has dials for a reason, right? It's not like all hot or all cold. And I think it's the same here. In some ways, in my career, I had to learn to tone it down, right? And to, you know, certainly at the FBI, sometimes you need to take that back seat at a meeting and wait to be invited to the table. And that's really the appropriate way to build rapport, relationships, and trust. Other times, I needed to learn to tune it up, right, to up the volume a little bit. Um, I had a wonderful boss, Dave Schlendorf, who we were in a meeting together with big bosses at the FBI once, and I was working for Dave. And we left the meeting, and we were walking back to the office, and I made a point. I don't even remember what the point was now. And he stopped in the hall and said, why didn't you say that in the meeting? You're not helping me, right? Telling me this now, now I have to go back and fix this. And I re- realized, so well, sometimes you have to tone it down, sometimes you have to tone it up, and that modulation, that sort of volume control about when to lean in and out, if you will, um, that's, you know, even just thinking about that explicitly for folks starting out, I think is really helpful because it's not one size fits all. Right. I, I totally agree and understand that. It isn't one size fits all. And a lot of leadership is described in bumper stickers, sayings, and I don't think that's realistic. I think it's situationally dependent, and you have to be self-aware and aware of your circumstances to adjust. That's well said. You're training the next generation, or helping to train them, federal leaders through AU's School of Public Affairs. How, How do we encourage, how do you encourage young people to answer the call of federal service? You know, I'm so lucky at AU. We, we draw in, right, students who are primed for this um, and who are passionate when they walk in our doors. Even with that population, you know, there, there are headwinds, right? USA Jobs, right? Just even getting educated, these pieces. So, so helping with that is a whole set of work. I'm also really passionate about, as you point out, reaching out to a diversity of folks who haven't even thought about these careers as careers. I had a conversation with a young woman the other day, and she was talking about law school. It's, I'm, I'm fully supportive of law school. And I said, have you ever thought about a career in, in federal service? And she said, uh, isn't that for old people? <laughs> I said, uh, <laughs> um, okay. So, you know, I mean, there's an education to do, right? Clearly, she's never seen the softball leagues, you know, down on the mall or kickball or any of the fun we all have in town where we certainly did when we were younger. But I, I really try, again, podcasts like this and other venues to put myself out there and really talk about what it's like, the opportunities I had at the FBI to be in the middle of the mission space and to explain that the federal government needs all kinds of skills, right, and diversity of thought, right, and diversity of people. So so there's that sort of working with the group that's primed for us, and we need to help them get over those barriers, get in and then stay and stay um, engaged and passionate and then there's reaching those new audiences. And there's a lot of work both places, but it's a lot of fun to work with young folks who are passionate about it. So I'm really lucky in my current job. And career civil service is a great path if somebody wants to take it. Our board is 100% SES level career civil servants. They are all dedicated. They have a real passion for what they're doing. They could go work anywhere. 
but they choose federal service. And there's no place, I always tell young folks who ask me about it, there's no place you're going to get the level of responsibility quickly as you do in federal service, right? And, and yes, yeah, sometimes things move slow. It's supposed to move slow, right? We talk about the reasons for that, too. But there's, there's really no other industry, maybe some startups you might get this experience, but really where you can be in the middle of mission space, whether you're passionate about the environment or national security or health care, you know, public health, and you're going to get in there quickly, um, and you're going to get in the mix and get exposure, experience, and opportunity for impact that's really unlike any other career. Perfect. Well, thank you, Sasha, and thanks to everyone for listening. I'm Shane Canfield, and this has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. Talk to you next time. Reconnect with a carpool or van pool. Even if you're commuting just a few days a week, Commuter Connections can match you with others that live and work near or at the same place as you. Prefer taking the bus or train? There's never been a better time to reconnect with transit. Plus, you have the added comfort of knowing Guaranteed Ride Home is there for any unexpected emergency for free. For more options, visit commuterconnections.org or call 1-800-745-RIDE. Some restrictions apply.